Awesome. Hello, Forest Park. How we doing? All right, let's try it again because I know we're coming back from spring break. All of you guys got your tans, you're relaxing. Let's try it again. How are we doing this morning, Forest Park? That's a lot better. Thank you. Hey, well, welcome if you're here in person, if you're watching online. Thank you for coming and tuning in with us today. Hey, how great was worship, guys? I mean, I really, really connected with this worship set. I love their songs. What do you guys think? They do a good job. Man, they were great. These people put in so much time, so much free time. They're giving of their time and their talents. We're so grateful for the worship team. Well, hey, if you're tuning in online or if you're here and this is your first time or maybe you've been here a couple times and you keep wondering who's the weird blonde dude who gets up here once every three months, hey, my name is Preston Waller. I am the student pastor here at Forest Park Church, so I have the privilege and honor of getting to bring the message this morning, so I'm excited about that. But before we do so, I want to go over the vision of Forest Park Church. Why does Forest Park Church exist? Forest Park Church exists so that we can help people follow Jesus better one step at a time. That's the reason our kid venture is structured the way it is. That's the way we, why we do students the way we do. That's why groups exist the way they do here. All the things, the worship, the message, the tech, everything we do is built so that you and the person sitting next to you can experience and follow Jesus better one step at a time. So as I was preparing this message this week, I entitled the message Towers of Disappointment. So, and when we hear that word disappointment, I think a lot of us, including myself, think, man, I have had so much disappointment in my life. And let's just take it even in the last year and a half. A lot of us have experienced a lot of consistent disappointment in our lives over the last year and a half because of this pandemic. And so when we think about disappointment, we're going to think about all different things for maybe some of you, it's your marriage, maybe some of you, it's your kids, your job, your bank account, whatever it may be, there's disappointment in our lives almost every day. My goal with this message is not to tell you that when you follow Jesus, when you follow Christ, that all disappointment in your life goes away and that your life becomes perfect and you're never disappointed by people or situations. My goal for today is to show you why we become disappointed so much and how we can better handle disappointment in a very healthy and God-honoring way in our lives. So that's my goal today is to talk about that. And we're going to do so by looking at a famous story in Genesis 11. So if you have your Bibles, you have your phones, you can turn there. I always encourage people to follow along with me so you don't think I'm just making it up and going by the seat of my pants. You can see it's in Genesis 11. That's where we'll be. And so it's the story of the Tower of Babel. And if you know anything about this story, this is, if you believe the Bible like I believe it, and you believe it's not just, you know, good for us, good motivation, but it's historically accurate that these things actually happen, then in this story today, we're going to see where a bunch of different uh, languages came to be. How did we get to a world where there's so many different languages? So I want to ask a question before I get started. For those of you here in the room, raise your hand. If you're watching online, comment in the chat. If you speak any language fluently, I have to use that word, fluently, other than English, could you just raise your hand really quick? I want to see who can speak anything. Okay, we have a couple in here. Is there anyone who can speak two or more languages other than English? Okay, awesome. One of the things I've learned about doing and learning languages is that if you do not practice them outside of the classroom, you'll never truly get the hang of it. I'm in my master's program now, and I have to be required to take a Greek and a Hebrew class. And you may be thinking, Preston, that sounds so boring. And let me tell you, it is so boring. But I'll tell you what, one of the things I've, I, I noticed, like I said, is I'll, I'll learn it for a semester. I'll start to get the hang of it, the basics. And then all of a sudden, I leave the class, and I never touch Greek and never touch Hebrew again. But so I, I, we're going to not talk so much about languages today, because when we look at the Tower of Babel, that's what we might think. What's well, all about how we got different languages, but there's so much in there. 
that we can glean from. But before we start, I want to tell you a funny story about uh, just how I've struggled with learning languages. So in 2013, at my home church, we took a mission trip to Ethiopia. The reason we went there is we had missionaries from our church there who were trying to reach a specific people group called the Afar people. And so me, my lead pastor, and my associate pastor went over to Ethiopia, and the first thing they told us is we're going to have to spend the first two to three days giving you a crash course in how to speak their language because they spoke a very specific language, a very specific dialect. If you don't know anything about Ethiopia, though, the funny thing is that their food is not like American food. (laughs) And so when you go into Ethiopia, nine times out of ten, when you're sitting down, you'll get the same food. You'll sit around the table with your friends and family, and they'll bring out a silver platter. And on this silver platter, there will be noodles, sauce, goat meat, and peppers. And so what will happen is everyone sits around the platter, and we all use our hands. We grab the noodles, we dip it in the sauce, we grab the meat and the peppers, and we eat it with our hands all from the same plate. You may be thinking, President, that is not COVID-friendly. That is not COVID-sanitary. Well, of course it's not. This was 2013. But the funny thing is the Ethiopian food wasn't terrible. You see how I say that? Terrible. But it did destroy my stomach. So the whole night before, I'm talking to God. I'm like, you're really going to kill me here in Ethiopia, sitting on a toilet. Like, I'm not going to survive this. It was just tearing me apart. And so the next day when I woke up to go get a crash course and learning a different language, I was fading in and out. They'd be, Preston, what does this word mean? I'm like, bro, I don't even know where I'm at right now. Like, I'm fading in and out of consciousness. Like, Lord, please help me stay awake so I can learn. Eventually, I said, Preston, just go to the room. Take a nap, man. You're not paying attention. But it's just a funny story about how much I struggle with languages. I just never get the hang of them no matter how much I try. So when we look at the Tower of Babel story, we are going to see not just how languages came to be, but more importantly, how we deal with disappointment. This is my big theme for today. If you want to listen to this part and then tune me out for the next 30 minutes, you can do so. This is the the biggest point we can take away from today, and you'll see it woven in through everything we talk about today. It's this. All disappointment in your life and my life stems from one thing. When we take good things in our life and we turn them into God things. When we take good things in our life, like our marriage, like our children, like our great job, like our our good uh, career, and we try to make them our source of hope, our source of joy, our source of peace, they end up leading to disappointment. So all disappointment in your life and my life stems from one thing. When we take good things and take them into God things, and that's the biggest takeaway for today. So uh, before we get started, I just want you to reflect. What is, if you had to answer to yourself, the biggest disappointment in your life right now? Would you say it's my husband who seems to never get it together? Is it my children who constantly disobey me? The the promotion I didn't get at work last month? The financial instability that I've been having for years? What would you say it is? Because when we talk about disappointment today, that's what you're going to continuously refer back to in your head. So think about that. So let's go ahead and let's read Genesis 11. It's a great story, and it speaks a lot to our lives today. Here's what it says in Genesis 11, verses 1 through 4. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly, and they had brick for stone and bitum for mortar. Then they said, come, this is important, listen to this, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of of the whole earth. So when we look at the first four verses, we think, oh, the Israelites just wanted to build a city. 
They were tired of walking everywhere, tired of traveling, so they just wanted to settle somewhere. They wanted to build a city. They wanted to build a tower. They, you know, they were tired of walking. It's not a big thing. What's, what's the big deal with them wanting to build a city, wanting to build a tower? Well, the, the, the reason this is a prime example of what disappointment looks like is because they were choosing to stay put. What was God's first command to the people of Israel? And when I say people of Israel, I mean in the Garden of Eden. In chapter 1, his very first commandment was, be fruitful and multiply. In essence, this is what the command is. Hey, have sex and travel. That was his first command. Hey, hey, produce and then travel. Go and, and multiply out to the ends of the world. Now, God's given me a lot of commands in Scripture, like ones I don't like, like love your enemies and have patience with people who are mean to you. But I'll tell you, this is one of the easier ones for us. Hey, just, hey, just produce and just go and travel. Yet their willingness and their ability to say, no, we're just going to stay here. We're not going to move. We're going to build a city. We're going to build a tower. And they're just going to stay put was an act of disobedience to the first command they were given in the garden. One of the things I think that's very important for us to realize today is this, is that God always pushes his people outward. And sinful men and women always look to stay inward. What does that mean? It means that God is always calling you, he's always calling me to look outward, to look beyond ourselves, to look who we can serve, look where we can go, look how we can love, look who, how we can put others above ourselves. And then sinful man always looks inward. What's best for me? How can I improve my life? How can I retire five years early? How can I you know, create a savings account in my 20s so I can have more money in the future? We always think inward. How can I benefit me? How can I make my life better? But God always is calling you and he's always calling me to look outward to consider others' needs more than our own. And this is the root of what the Israelites' problem was in Genesis 11 is they wanted to look inward. So when we look at the verse in verse 4, it talks about them building a city, building a tower, and creating a great name. This is what basically that means. A city. They wanted a city, a home, a place to belong. They wanted a tower. They wanted significance. They wanted purpose. They wanted meaning in their life. They wanted a great name. They wanted to be connected to greatness. When we look at those three things, none of those three things are bad things. I mean, who doesn't want a place to belong? Who doesn't want a home? Who doesn't want purpose and meaning in their life? Who doesn't want to be great? God calls us to do things in excellence. These are all good things and good desires for you to have and for your children to have and for me to have. These are good desires. But again, the problem is they're just good desires, and we turn them into God desires. The problem with this is the people were seeking a place to belong, significance, and greatness, but they were looking for it in the wrong place. God had already promised them that he would fulfill all these needs. Look at this. City. God was to be their home. God was their place of belonging. No matter where they lived physically, God was their home. God was their temple. God was their belonging. They wanted significance. God was their significance through them pursuing his plan, his plan for them. That's how they got significance, not through a tower that reached to heaven, but through God and what he had for them. They wanted to be connected to greatness, but the greatness came through being connected to the most great, God. And that's how they can see just in this prime example of how we have good natural desires but ultimately how if we don't point those desires to God, they become sinful. So, you know, I've been using the S word a lot lately, and I know um, many of you probably are confused about the S word, and by S word I mean sin. 
So I, I found that typically when we hear that word, we have one or two reactions. One, if you didn't grow up in church like me, I mean, I went to church for the first time when I was 15. When you hear the word sin, you think, what is sin? I hear that word all the time, but what's really a sin? What's really not a sin? How do I know if I'm sinning, et cetera, et cetera? But if you grew up in a religious background, you grew up in church all the time, you've heard this word so much that every time you hear the word sin, you start to uh, recoil. It, it hits you just a little wrong in the heart. So what I, I want to do is give you a definition of sin because I have four points today, and three of them are what sin does to our lives, and then the last one is what God redeems in our lives. But in order to do that, I need us to have a collective definition of what sin truly is. So this is a very broad definition, but this is the definition of what sin is. Sin is an attempt to find in something or someone else what you should find in God. Anything in your life that you have, good, bad, and different, that you try to find meaning, purpose, significance, greatness in, apart from God, is ultimately where sin comes from. That is what sin is. Any attempt to try to find in someone, a partner, children, your boss's praise, everything, ultimately apart from God, is sin. So with that being said, let's get into the first point. The first point is this. Sin attempts to build towers to heaven again these desires were not wrong it was not wrong to want any of these things in their life it was wrong to want them apart from god and the funny thing i think about reading this story in genesis 11 that happened centuries and centuries ago is that human beings haven't changed sure we have fancier lights we have bigger and nicer buildings with ac we have uh, more data and science to inform us about how the world and the universe works obviously than they did but our core longings in our heart, the core things we desire in our life, have not changed from what we're seeing in Genesis 11 centuries ago. We all still want these same things. Isn't that why family is so important? Isn't that why it's so important not only for students, but also for us as, as adults, if we were honest with one another, that we're accepted by the right people, that we're praised by the right people? It's not just enough that we get praise from random strangers on social media, but that we specifically are looking for the praise from our father to say he's proud of us, from our boss to say he's recognized our good work, from our, our, our co-workers to say that we're doing a good job. See, adults and students all still have the same desire of meaning and purpose and wanting to matter. We also say, want the same thing in security. You and I still want security today. That's why the insurance industry is a trillion dollar a year industry. I've done some research on just some of the weird things you can get insurance on. One of the weird policies you can take out for insurance is for a low price of $118 a year. Very cheap you can get alien insurance, which means if you are abducted by aliens, and that could be proven, your family will get $500,000. And even a step further than that, in this same policy, if you can prove that you were eaten by aliens, and you can prove that to them, your family gets $3 million. So again, I'm not telling you, this is not Preston standing up and saying, cancel all your insurance policies, they're sinful. I'm like, no, insurance is important, we need this. But what I'm trying to say is sometimes we try to over-security our lives so much that we have these weird things that put everything in proper place so that nothing can ever go wrong, we don't have to worry about anything. Even in the rarest of occasions, if I'm abducted by aliens, I can know that I was taken care of. And so insurance itself just points to the fact that we want security. We want to be secure in our lives and our relationships and everything that we do. We want to matter. This is why men, when they get 50, have a midlife crisis and all of a sudden grandpa's driving a Corvette and playing in a rock band in his guitar in his garage. You're like, bro, you are 50 years old. You have grandchildren. What are you doing? 
Because he wants his life to matter, and he reflects on his 50 years and says, wow, like my life hasn't mattered as much as I thought it would, so he begins to do random things. We want to be connected to greatness. Isn't this why we name drop? Oh, I had lunch with so-and-so yesterday, and they told me this. Or it's why our natural reaction is when we see someone famous in public, our first reaction is to get their autograph or take a picture and post it on social media to show people I am connected to greatness. The funny thing is we only want to be connected to greatness when it makes us look better. No one comes back from an annual checkup and says, guess what, I'm 25 pounds overweight. No one posts that on Facebook and says, look at me, I'm overweight. And I obviously have no room to talk, but see, we only want to be connected to greatness when it makes us look great and doesn't make us look worse. C.S. Lewis has a beautiful quote, and it won't be on the screen, but I'm going to read it, and then I'll explain it to you if it doesn't make much sense. He says this. C.S. Lewis says, The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols breaking the hearts of the worshipers. For here they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have yet not visited. Basically what Lewis is saying is all the good things in your life, a great steak. Does anyone love steak other than me? If you're a vegan in here, hey, we got to get you a steak. It's okay. Good food, good music, good experiences from your past, good memories with your father, with your mother that you remember in the good times. They are not bad things, but if you mistake them for God itself and they become the only source of your joy, the only source of your happiness, the only source of your peace, you are mistaking the place where beauty really comes from. Beauty doesn't come from the things of the world. They come from the Father of lights. As James says, every good thing comes down from the Father of lights. Every good thing in your life is not itself, but it is a reflection of the Creator who made it in God, and that is the true source of our joy. So it will revolutionize your life when you understand that your great spouse that's doing so great or your children who are perfect and never make a mistake are not that they're perfect in themselves, but they're a reflection of the God who created them. But let's keep reading the story because the story doesn't end there. Genesis 11, 5 through 6 says this, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is the only beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. This leads to our second point, which is this. Sin's mantra or sin's roots is in one phrase, by my will, in my strength, for my glory. They said, let us build a tower for ourselves, for the glory of our names. See, everything in our lives, sin, sexual morality, greed, lust, uh, anger, impatience, uh, unfaithfulness, all these sins are a result of the great sin. And let me explain it. Francis Chan said it this way. I'm paraphrasing. I heard it in a sermon one time, and it's a great illustration of what I'm talking about with this phrase. He said, pride is the sewer pipe out of which all other sins flow out of. That all of our sins in our lives are a result of prideful human beings. In fact, even think about this. How did Satan become Satan? Satan didn't become Satan because he chopped up little puppies and sacrificed them on the altar. No, Satan became Satan because he had pride. He sought to be equal or above God, and God saw that and punished him for that. 
So the problem with pride, though, is we're all prideful. Hey, you're prideful. I'm prideful. I'm not going to sit up here as a pastor and pretend like I don't have pride in my heart. Of course I struggle with this stuff. It's the root of where all my sin comes from. But the problem with pride is it can easily be covered up with good Christian churchy acts of service. And so I'm not trying to tell you that I'm, I'm calling out volunteers here. I'm just giving an example. Hey, you see people who serve in the church, you say, man, they're so faithful. They love God. You see someone who writes a check for the church as a donation for a one-time gift, you say, man, they, they must really believe in the mission and vision of what Forest Park's doing. But if you could uncover their heart, if you could see inside, I'm not saying they are, but most, most times we are, even I am. We do it out of a heart that says, look at me. Look how I went above and beyond and you didn't. Look how I served even when I didn't want to and you should. I gave when I was supposed to give and you didn't. And if we're honest with one another, we all get like that. But oftentimes, pride is so covered up because we're doing the right Christian thing that we think, that person's so humble. People tell me that all the time. They say, Preston, you're so humble. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not humble. I just, I just cover it up maybe better than you do. And so the, the problem is we, we oftentimes try to do this. We're so prideful, but we cover it up. If you're looking at that statement and you're saying, Preston, how do I know if I live a life that is by my will, in my strength, for my glory? Let's, just, let's do some reflection questions. When you wake up in the morning... Do you say, today I'm going to live life by my will, or am I going to live it by God's will? When you wake up, you say, all right, Preston needs to get this done. I need to cook. I need to clean. I need to go to work. I need to go to a grocery store. I need to handle this in the yard. I need to pressure wash the house. Do you say, today I will do what Preston wants to do, or do you wake up and say, I have some things I have to get done, but God, I want to leave my door and my life open for you to lead me where you would lead me today. That means I don't get to go to the grocery store that night because I had to serve and love on someone who needed a phone call that took an hour. And they kept talking and kept venting, and I didn't have time to go to the grocery store because of that. Are you living a life that wakes up in the morning and says, I'm open to wherever you take me, God. It's by your will, not by my will. Do you wake up in the morning and say, God, whatever comes my way, I'm going to lean on your strength? Or do you wake up every day and say, I'm going to get through today. When I go into work and my boss is getting on my case, I'm going I'm to not say anything. I'm going to handle it. I'm going to deal with my disobedient children when I get home. I'll handle them. I'll discipline them. Or do you wake up and say, God, by your strength, only by your strength, can I get through what comes my way today? When you lay your head down at night, do you say, today was a good day for me. Man, I got so much accomplished. I pushed the ball down the field. I made progress in my life. Or do you lay down at each night and say, I was, did all that I did today for the glory of God. Even if I didn't push the ball down the field, even if I didn't get further, closer to retiring early, I did everything I did for God's glory today. Because what happens is we're so fast-paced society that we don't stop to ask ourselves these questions. We just say, oh, I just, you know, it was another Monday. Went to work, came home, cooked, put the kids to bed. Okay, good day. But when we stop to reflect, we start to realize, hey, I've been living a life under my strength, under my will, for my glory for about years now. And I haven't stopped to really consider how sinful that is. And so that's why this is so important. Every sin in your life stems from a pride issue. Let's keep reading the story, though, because this isn't where it stops. God said, come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there, over there, over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. So the third point is this. Sin leaves rotting towers of disappointment in your life. So what happened is God came down, and he said, let's confuse the language so they can't communicate, and then when they can't communicate... They won't be able to build the tower, so they just left the city standing, left the tower up. 
What's so interesting about these verses to me is if I was God, and thank God I'm not, because all our lives would be terrible, but if I was God, the thing I would do is not come down and confuse them. I'd come down and like a dad with his kids playing Legos, I'd knock over that tower. I'd send fire down from heaven. I'd blast them. I'd destroy their city to send a message across loud and clear that, hey, I'm a powerful God and your attempts don't matter. But the interesting thing is God did not do that. God came down and left the tower standing And why did he do that? Because he left it as a monument for people to look back on and say, this is not the way to do it. This is not the path to pursue. So the question becomes, was this an act of God's judgment or was this an act of God's mercy? One of the things I've seen in people's lives as a pastor is I can always tell someone's growing in their faith when they see all the things in their life that don't go, quote, to plan, to their plan, and they look back and say, that was an act of God's mercy on my life not an act of God's judgment. Because God is ultimately coming down and saying, I'm giving you mercy. Turn from this. Don't pursue that. Do it differently. I'm extending mercy to you to wake you up to understand this is not the way. It's an act of God's mercy. He could easily come down and zap us and say, that's it. You ran out of chances. This is over. But it's an act of mercy. Our mindsets would radically change if we saw the rotting towers in our past or in our present, not as an act of God's wrath and disappointment in us, but an act of his mercy to wake us up from where we're going. How would you look at the divorce you went, to, went through 10 years ago if you saw it as an act of God's mercy to show you, hey, you can't treat them that way. You can't react that way and expect your marriage to succeed. But oftentimes we look back at the marriage and say, well, that sucked. But God is using those past memories, those present memories for some of us to wake us up and say, hey, look, there is a better way to do this. For some of you who got fired from your job five years ago, God's not doing that as an act of judgment. He's doing an act of mercy to show you, hey, you can't walk into work, say, hashtag no filter, I'm real, I say what's on my mind and mean what I say, and expect not to get in trouble for it. Sometimes God's saying, hey, you know what, you may speak your mind, but in work it's not the time to speak your mind or else you will get fired. So we look back on bad experiences and God's saying, don't do that again. Don't do it that way again. So we need to learn from our disappointments and our failures and see these as acts of mercy. Now there are one of four reactions you and I can have to a rotting tower of disappointment in our life. There are one of four reactions. I'm going to go through them very quickly. The first one is this. We can blame the tower. Uh, I was just so young when I got married. You know, we were 18 had a kid. We got married because we had a kid together. And, you know, I was just so naive and young. That's why the marriage didn't work. Next time, I'll do better. Even if we were honest, we haven't worked on our anger and selfish attitude, and it's still the same attitude we had at 18, and that's really the real issue, and not that you were 18 and young. So we blame the tower. I was just young and 18, and that's why it didn't work out. Next time, the next marriage will be better. That's the first reaction. The second reaction is we can blame ourselves I didn't work hard enough. If I would have just taken more time, if I would have just done more work in my job, I would have got that promotion. I would have had better kids if I spent more time with them. Do you see the two extremes? One says, oh, it's just the tower's fault. It really had nothing to do with me. The other one says, it's all my fault. If only I had worked harder, then my life would be better. Both extreme, both unhealthy, both sinful responses to disappointment. The third one is you can blame the world. You become a mean, cynical person who gives up on happiness and says, uh, life is not worth being happy. You'll hear it said like this oftentimes. I usually just set my bar low with people so I don't get disappointed with them. 
I never go, any, go into any situation in life with high expectations because I know people in situations will fail me, so I go in with a low bar. We become cynical to happiness. We think it's not something we can have or achieve, and we think that ultimately all things in life are meaningless and that we would never say it this way, but there's no hope for my life, so I'm just going to be mean and cynical, and I'm going to tear apart everything the church does that I don't like. I'm going to tear apart everything my boss does at work, even though it's his best that he can do. And so we become mean and cynical and blame the world and say it's just the way life is. There's no meaning. There's no joy in life. Or last response we can have to a rotting tower is realize we were created for a different world. Realize we were created for a different world. C.S. Lewis says this way. It won't be on the screen. I'm paraphrasing. He said, if we find a desire that does not seem to be quenched in this world, we must realize that we were made for a different world. Have you ever thought the reason that your marriage has never been a very consistent source of joy in your life is because your marriage wasn't supposed to be a consistent joy in your life, it was supposed to be God? Have you ever thought that maybe you haven't had as much peace in your job, it's been ups and downs because your job was not meant to be your source of peace, it was supposed to be God? So we realize that these things are not our source of joy, of happiness, of peace. We realize that God is ultimately the one, that's why we realize we weren't made for this world. As Christians, we realize we were made for a different world. I want to show you some verses from Psalm 139. It really speaks to um, the last point I'm about to make, and it's really beautiful. I love this psalm. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16 say this. The psalmist says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them what the psalmist is saying is that before you breathed your first breath before you lived your first second god had already formed you created you and loved you just like you were God was in the process in your mother's room of making you who you were, knitting you together intricately, and he knew every day of your life before it was even one of them. You want to be loved. You want to be approved of. You want to be known. Well, guess what? You are. You are known. You are cared for. You are loved by a God whose love is unfailing, and he can never run out of patience for you and the mistakes you make. This is a God who is the source of all good things. And he already knows you. The approval you're looking for, him, uh, looking for in, the, in the arms of a loved one or in a relationship, you can find truly and perfectly in God's arms. The security you're looking for in your life can be perfectly found in his promises that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. And God's love for you is an undying, unchanging love from the beginning. Before you even breathe, he had already chosen to love you with a passion that is not yet compared to anything of this world. Let's look at how the story of Babel ends. Last verse, Genesis 11:9. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. A very bleak, depressing, and disappointing ending to a story. But the great part about Genesis 11 is that Genesis 11 leads into Genesis 12. While one tower stands rotting in disappointment, God chooses to build a new tower in Genesis 12. Let's look at what happens in in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, we know Abraham, Father Abraham, many sons. I didn't even go to church and I know that song, come on. 
Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I want you to see the connection here to the city, the tower, and the great name that we talked about in Genesis 11. He says, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God chooses to let one tower stand and rot in disappointment, and yet in the next chapter, he is building and erecting a new tower, a perfect tower, a great tower that will bless all the people that come from Abraham's line. And here's the funny part. God chooses to erect and build this tower in a man who is old, frail, and infertile. If I'm starting a new revolution like Scott talked about last week on Easter, I'm not starting with the outcast, the frail, infertile old man. I'm starting with like King Saul, handsome, chiseled, can break people's jaw with a single punch. Like that's who I'm starting my revolution with. That's who I'm building a tower up and through. But God says, I will choose the frail, infertile old man because it's through his weaknesses that I will make my name great and his faith will last for generations. And so he chooses to start and build a new tower. And that goes to our last point. God is building a better tower even now. The Tower of Babel story, again, is a very depressing story, but it leads to a great redeeming story of the faith of Abraham. And then not only does it lead and start in Abraham, but it continues throughout the whole Bible. Let me show you in Revelation. So we're going all the way from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And don't worry, Revelation, we're not talking about end times. It's just a beautiful verse of how this ties all in together. Revelation 7, verses 9 through 10. Look at this. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes, and all peoples, and all languages. Standing there before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with one loud, unanimous voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Do you not see how God is taking what happened in Genesis 11 and redeeming it? And at the end of times, even to the point where we haven't got there yet, he's bringing all tribes, all nations, all languages back together. He dispersed them in Genesis 11. And now in the end times of Revelation, come back and we all shout in one unanimous voice, one loud and clear message. And that is salvation belongs to our God. So God starts and disperses, but God also redeems. And God, what he leaves in disappointment in your life, he will redeem in his time. And we will all stand before him one day and shout, salvation belongs to our God. God doesn't need you or me to build a church. In fact, God doesn't need you to fix your marriage. God doesn't need you to break an addiction today. What God really wants from you is what he found in Abraham in Genesis 12, which is a willing spirit to hand God a blank check and say, whatever you want, write it in there. It is yours. It is not mine. Your life would revolutionary change. It would revolutionize your life in so many major ways. If you saw all the talent, all the resources, all the money, all the things in your life, not as yours, but as God's, and you just learn how to give it back to him in a proper way that you would come to him and say God none of this is mine here's a blank check write what you want on it if you want me to serve in kids and whole crying toddlers for three out of four weeks that's what I'll do if you want me to give 10 more percent than what I'm giving now even if I don't know if I could squeeze it I'll trust you and have faith I'm submitting what I want and what I'm searching for and what I'm desiring on the table you pick it up and you build a tower that you see fit in my life And so the Christian life is not about ability, it is about availability. 
And the reason we're not having breakthrough in our life, a lot of us, is because we're not willing to lay what we want down on the table and say, God, build what you would have. Build what you would want in my life. We're so stuck on, I really, like, I really got to get this going. Like, I, I really want to get a second degree, or I really want my kids to go to church, or I really want to retire five years early. We're so stuck on what we want that we won't lay those down and say, God, even if you don't want me to ever retire, use my life the way you would have it be used for your glory. The last point is this. You, me, everybody watching online, everyone here today, you and I are building one of two towers in our life right here, right now. We're either building a Genesis 11 tower building an impressive life by my will, in my strength, for my glory, or building a Genesis 12 tower by submitting our lives down to God and allowing Jesus to build his life in us so that he can use us to serve others. Let me tell you guys today, you are never more like Jesus than when you serve other people. And when you live a life that is not about you and what you want, but about what God would have you do. And disappointment will only lessen and impact you less when you learn to lay your life down before the cross and say, God, it is your will. It is your life. Do with it what you want. Every second you have, every breath you breathe, every penny in your account is not yours. It is God's. May we lay blank checks before him and say, write whatever you want in there. It's yours. Let me be faithful. And if you're not doing that, today would be the day to start. It'd be the day to start. It would be the day to say, God, no longer will I do a life that's by my will and my strength for my glory, but by your will and your strength for your glory. And it's only through this that disappointment won't scar us as much as it has. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you so much for the cross. Thank you so much for your unending, unfailing love in our lives. God, if it wasn't for Jesus, there would be no hope for us. Disappointment would be a consistent trend from beginning to end of every day. But through and because of Jesus, we have hope, we have eternal life, and we have joy everlasting. I pray for everyone here in this room watching online, and myself included, God, that we would not be prideful people that wake up every day and say, by my will, in my strength, for my glory, but we would lay every day down to you and say, God, what would you have me do with my life? What would you have me do with my money? What would you have me do with my time? What would you have me do with my family? And we would honestly come to you with open arms and say, have your way in me and build the better and more joyful and more lasting tower in and through my life so I can be a blessing to those who bless me. God, everything we say, everything we do from here on out, Father, I pray that we don't just amen it, believe it, but we apply it as we leave these places, that we would seek to be that Genesis 12 tower of faith in our families, in our workplaces, in our community. Would you bless us as we go? May everything we say and do be honoring and glorifying to Jesus' name. We pray it in his name. Amen. All right, guys, one, two, two quick announcements. I'll let you go just really quick. If you're a 6th through 12th grader or have 6th through 12th graders, we have a night of worship next Sunday night from 5 to 7. It's going to be great. The band's going to have a long list. We're taking communion. It's going to be an awesome time, so invite your friends. And then secondly, next week, Pastor Scott is kicking off a new series, Why Should I Even Be a Christian? And it's going to talk about all the reasons why people typically have issues with the Christianity religion. And so I want to encourage you, this is a great series to invite your unbelieving friends or family to. I mean, we're going to talk about the hypocrisy in the church, the hypocrisy in the religion of Christianity, and expose it and talk about it in a real way. And it will be a great tool to invite some unbelieving friends and family to this. So we can't wait to see what God's going to do in and through this series. But we're so grateful you tuned in online or watching here today. So I hope you have a great Sunday. We'll see you next week.